Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Uh, well, here we are three weeks now into the new year, and after our New Year's episode, we said that we were going to do some tribute episodes, uh, doing some tribute to the people that we lost in 2020 that we weren't able to get to in 2020. So last week we did David Prowse, who played Darth Vader in the earlier Star Wars films, and uh, this week we we got a twofer. Two people who are, should be pretty well known to the horror community, maybe one more than the other, John Saxon and Daria Nicolodi both died last year. John Saxon, I believe, of pneumonia. But anyway, Daria Nicolodi is a fixture in some of the most popular of Dario Argento's films. She is the writer of Suspiria. She was supposed to star in that movie, but uh, she got an injury, and they brought in someone else to star in that film. But she did write the picture. Um, and that's pretty significant because she was in a relationship with Dario Argento. They have a daughter together, Aja Argento, who is an actress and writer and director in her own right. So she was in quite a few of his films. In fact, he met her when he was casting for Deep Red, and she ended up starring in it, and that was the beginning of their relationship. She's been in a few movies, actually, that we've done. We've done Deep Red, yeah. we've done Phenomena, and she starred in Opera, and we did Opera as well. So uh, today we're going to do another Dario Argento movie, Tenebrae. Many people say this is one of his best films. And it also happens to have a role for another actor that we lost last year, John Saxon. John Saxon may be more well-known to the American crowd. His has over 200 film roles and television roles to his name. Very striking kind of leading man type guy in the early 60s. Played a ton of different roles and then had quite a bit of a turn at horror. He was, of course, Nancy's father uh, in Nightmare on Elm Street and reprised that role a couple times during the series. Uh, Black Christmas, one of our all-time favorites. Mm -hmm. He is the the detective in there. And in this film, he plays a role that, honestly, he's played a lot of stuff, right? And I have not seen hardly any of his huge repertoire of films, but the horror ones. So I'm used to seeing him as a very more somber, serious, kind of driven Mm -hmm. guy in all these police roles. So for me, anyway, it was really nice to see him have a role as a literary agent in this movie, where he's just kind of a schmoozing, smiling, energetic guy. And and I was a side of him I hadn't seen before, so even though his part isn't so large in this film, I think it's a fitting tribute considering we've done some of his more popular ones already. You know, Craig, uh, you know, I I love (laughs) Argento. We've done four or five, this will maybe be the fifth film of his that we've done so far. And I believe that when you come into these Italian horror films, it's a bit of a mixed bag for you. Sometimes you really like them. Sometimes they're a little too weird. Uh, Sometimes they're, quite frankly, quite stupid. But Argento's a little bit higher on the top of the pack with his films. And uh, this is definitely classic Argento giallo. Uh, right down to the gloved hands and the killer POV and the mystery. And then one of his calling cards, usually the mystery solved by something that one of the characters needs to go back and remember. Mm-hmm. You know, something they saw that they had to kind of piece together. And I was really hoping that that would be the case in this one. And it was, in fact, which is fun because whenever you're watching a mystery, you do kind of want to have a fighting chance at being able to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'd have confidence most of the time watching his films that. 
at least his giallo pictures, that when there's a mystery involved, I pay really, really close attention and try to figure it out by the end. I have to admit, this one had a couple twists that I didn't see in it. Uh, There was a point at which I kind of thought I had it figured out and didn't. And then there was a point where it's revealed who the killer was. And and then it also kind of, there's a twist there toward the end as well. So um, if you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, if the beginning of us talking about it starts to inspire you to go see it, you probably should just go see it if you don't want spoilers, because we will Mm -hmm. be hinting at, if not outright spoiling it, especially by the end of the podcast. Definitely. So I've never seen this before, but it had been on my list for a long time. It's a 1982 film. I had never seen it before, but it had been on my list forever. So I was super happy and eager for the opportunity to cram another Dario Argento giallo pick in the mix. Because I'm always in the mood for these kind of movies, even if you are not. So, uh, have you ever heard of this before? Had you ever seen it before? I heard of it. It uh, is on Shudder and maybe other streaming prep platforms i don't know all i know is that i've scrolled past it many times and i knew exactly what it was um and you're right this these these films just aren't my cup of tea i um my sister called me yesterday and she's a fan of the podcast she's listened to all of them she's co-hosted with us at least once or twice and I said, I, you know, I, I have to get up early tomorrow to do the podcast. And she's like, oh, what movie are you doing this week? And I said, Todd's making us do another one of those dumbass Jollo films. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and she went, ugh. <laughs> no! <laughs> Come on, Craig, tell me how you really feel. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. It's, I can take it. I can I take know. it. I get it. I get it. It's it is a particular genre and I understand why it has its fans. I I get it. it. Just not so much for me and I think that part of what bothers me about them is after a while they all kind of start to seem the same. Some creeper in black gloves sneaks around and talks in a breathy voice and kills a bunch of people and and then in the end you know it's very twisty and you figure out who it is and whatever i mean they they all seem very similar to me that's not to say that i don't think that there is very skillful filmmaking going on I, i do think that there is skillful filmmaking going on just not my cup of tea. And these actors uh, who we're paying tribute to, it's funny that you say we've seen several movies that Daria Nicoldi, N- Nicolodi was in because I-, I didn't remember her. I didn't recognize her. That's not to say that she's not good. She is. She's she's perfectly fine. She's a good actress in this movie. John Saxon, I am more familiar with and a bigger fan of really just because of the Nightmare movies. And I I loved him as Nancy's dad in Nightmare 1 and 3. Mm. Um, I, I really enjoyed him. And then, you know, uh, New Nightmare is very meta and, and he plays himself in that movie and then you know at the 
climax of the movie when reality starts to blur, he goes back and plays the character of Nancy's father again. And I was a big fan of his and I haven't seen a lot of his other movies, but I just he's one of those faces that just pops up and you're like, oh, John Saxon. Like, <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like a beefcake, you know, he's I, handsome I, and charming and. And he's Italian, and he had a long career. He was discovered at, like, 16 or, or something, I think by a filmmaker who invited him to audition for a role. And then he went on to act steadily. And in his early career, um, as was the case for many darker-complected Italian actors of the day, he ended up playing a lot of minority roles, like... Hispanic roles or even Native American roles, you know, back before we knew better than to do that. And then his career continued and and he was very successful. You know, he wasn't necessarily a leading man, but he had a, a strong presence, a very handsome face, and he was a good actor and I liked him. It's always the case, these people who we're familiar with from different films and different periods of our lives. We don't know them, but when we hear that we've lost them, um, it's sad. It's, it's, it's not, you know, maybe on the same level as losing somebody that you know personally or are close to, but you feel a connection to these people and you feel the loss when they're gone. And so I was glad for the opportunity um, to be able to do this. And, and you picked the movie and you picked it largely because we could kill two birds with one stone, frankly. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that there... Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that there are probably more compelling John Saxon performances that we could have talked sure. about. But like you said, the ones that I'm most familiar with, we've already done. He doesn't have a huge role in this movie, but he's charming and handsome, and so it's fitting. The movie itself, I thought was okay. It was typical. It was exactly what I expected it to be. It was twisty. It did keep me guessing. Even by the end, I didn't know who the killer was. I thought I had it figured out a couple of times. I was wrong. Ultimately, when it was revealed who it was, I kind of felt a little stupid. I kind of felt like, that should have been more obvious than it was. Mm. But anyway. Well, you and I... Your enthusiasm just comes through loud and clear. (laughs) Admittedly, obviously, we approach these movies in different ways because this is comfort food for me. Uh, As I've said before, when I probably like a broken record every time we do a Jalo pick, is that I am always in the mood for these. Like I'm always in the mood for like a 1960s Godzilla picture. There's something about the style and the setting. And uh, they're almost always filmed in Europe and around the 70s and 60s and up in like this one into the early 80s. So I get to see a foreign country and I get to see it at a particular time when it was kind of cool and hip and the fashion is kind of fun. And then there is, like you said, a very recognizable style, which I love about it. You know, there's always cool camera work. There's always that's true some crazy tracking shots in there. and Beautiful locations, always. Beautiful. 
crazy cool beautiful locations uh, and then just a certain mood, a certain atmosphere in it. It's this, it's this mystery that you have to solve, and, and I love a mystery as well. The problem with a lot of these movies is that oftentimes the mystery doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes the directors are so caught up in style and, and trying to do something that the either it's dumb or, you know, it, it, there's some nonsensical way that the character comes to their conclusion, like they stumble on a book in a library that gives them a clue, you know, something really out there. But this movie I particularly liked, maybe more so than any of the other Jalo pictures we watch. I mean, it is a very straightforward, easy to follow, makes perfect sense kind of plot. And I thought the situations were were realistic and reasonable and the things that happen could happen and the way that they come to the conclusion and the sort of the case goes along makes sense to me. You know, I mean, there's maybe one or two little coincidental things that kind of happen, but uh, overall, it was something that I was engrossed in and I was following. I was really, really just trying to figure out who did it through the whole thing. And then, of course, we always get gore, you know? Oh, yeah. Some brutal stuff. In this movie, man, maybe more so than some of the other ones of his, like, really gory at, at one point. And then and some nudity. And I'm always a fan. I'm a fan of, of nudity and, and gore. Two great, wonderful, <laughs> lovely things. So, uh, yeah. So <laughs> Anyway, this movie hit all the buttons for me, to be honest. I know we're, I'm going to drag you through this episode, and this is going to be me talking about how much I enjoyed it, and you're going to be like, yeah, okay, Todd, I get what you're saying, but just didn't hit those buttons for me. Fair enough. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the stuff that you mentioned, I agree. The cinematography is good always. Like I said, the locations, it makes me want to travel. I, you know, I want to see Italy and all of this beautiful architecture. And the gore is very, very typical in this movie compared to Argento's other movies and, and the other Giallo's, you know, lot, lots of that bright, shockingly red blood, lots of throat cutting and mm. people getting impaled on things. And, uh, it's typical and it, it, it looks great. I don't have any criticism of it in that area. The, as far as, uh, the realism of the plot, there wasn't anything that was jarringly unrealistic about it, but I think that I would need to watch it again, which I'm not going to. I think that I would need <laughs> to watch it again to satisfy myself, because when the killer was revealed, I was like, wait a second. Like, <laughs> mm. I, I, I kept thinking... It, it felt like the killer would have had to be in more than one place at one time at some points. And, and, and part of that also, again, I would have to, um, review it because, and here we go, sign out now if you're not interested in spoilers, because ultimately there's not just one killer in this movie. Yeah. Um, there's more than one. So that's the trick they pull. Yeah. I would have to, really go back and pay attention to where in the timeline things happen to figure it out. But there's one scene in particular I was like, mm, it's kind of iffy to me that the killer could pull this off kind of being in two places at one time. But anyway, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like every week we 
jabber and jabber more in the beginning before we get into the plot. And, <laughs> and we're like, okay, plot. Here's what happens. Here's what happens. <laughs> okay. So, so I feel like we're at that point. Let's jump in. <laughs> Let's jump into the fire as the pages of the book get tossed into the fire. Uh, the movie just starts right out right away with those gloved hands. It's holding a book called Tenebrae by a guy, an author named Peter Neal, who is going to be our main actor in this whole thing, is played by an actor named Anthony Francioska. As this gloved hand is tearing pages out of this book and throwing it into the fire, he's reading. The impulse had become irresistible. There was only one answer to the fury that tortured him, and so he committed his first act of murder. He had broken the most deep-rooted taboo and found not guilt... Not anxiety or fear, but freedom. Every humiliation which stood in his way could be swept aside by this simple act of annihilation. Murder. And that is the theme that sort of frames our film, and we're going to come back to that quote uh, toward the end of the movie as well. And, you know, for me anyway, the other thing I love about these movies, and Dario Argento's in particular, is the freaking awesome music. The music kicks off with this fantastic, fantastic title tune that I just absolutely love. Definitely not a score by Goblin this time around, but it has that feel, that progressive rock tunes that are a little creepy and a little fun and upbeat that come in at just the right moments uh, in this movie, and and that's what kicks it off for us as well here. Yeah, and the, I, I enjoy the synthy score of these movies. It's fun, and so you're right. You know, we meet this guy, Peter McNeil, the author of the book that this loved killer, or presumably, is obsessing over and he for reasons unknown rides his bike to the airport um, <laughs> like in a, like in a jogging suit that he then changes out of to put his suit on for the flight who does that i don't know weird <laughs> um and he gets a telephone call from somebody and we only hear his side of it and the woman that he's talking to her name is jane it sounds like a tense conversation, but he just kind of brushes her off and yeah. he leaves and he goes to Rome and he's in Rome for like a, a publicity tour for his book, I guess. Yep. Yep. And we move away from him and we see this gorgeous woman in a store. I don't know where this was, but she's just in a store and we get the classic Giallo killer pov shot some heavy breather watches this woman shoplift a book she gets caught and to get out of it she gives the bookstore owner or manager her address she's like come by anytime like (laughs) it's like like really like (laughs) just own a stranger for a book like Go to a library. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she goes back to her apartment, and then she's murdered. And I don't remember specifically how. I didn't make note of it. But what I do know is that the pages of a book, presumably Tenebre, no, it is. They say later it is, yep, yep. are shoved into her mouth. Mm-hmm. Right after that, the killer 
slips a note for Peter under the door. And I don't even remember if he reads it at that point. No. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Not, I, not right I have to. I have a confession to make. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I watched the first half hour of this book in like five to ten minute increments on break at work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so I don't really remember the first part very well. So you may have to kind of help me out. I may jump in here then. Um, so he goes to a press meeting and uh, he encounters a couple characters. There's a guy uh, who's interviewing him. He's like a television journalist or whatever. He's got a TV show and he's interviewing him. And there's also a woman who comes in and interrupts them and she's also a journalist but she claims that his book is sexist and tells him that all his books are sexist why are your books so sexist women get killed in them blah 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 she her name is tilda and she's very off-putting and then john saxon jumps in as uh, his agent why don't we do this set up a separate interview with you and uh, mr neil uh, let him really come to grips with your magazine's attitude, huh? He just got off a plane and... Well, how would that be? Okay. I, uh, I think it's time. Uh-huh. Then he goes back to his hotel room and he meets Anne. We meet Anne, his secretary, and this is uh, the woman played by Daria. And Anne yeah. is pretty and nice and his secretary, and right away you get this impression that they've got some connection there that's more than just professional. Right. Although later we find out they haven't... Maybe they haven't really acted on it yet. Right. But they're awfully touchy-feely with each other, uh, hands on shoulders. They speak very sweetly to each other, uh, and they're there. And they also mention, uh, hey, Jane called, you know, but blah, blah, blah. So there's something about some woman Jane, right? Yeah, and there's another – you're right. I I felt that there was some sort of pre-established relationship between Anne and Peter, too, and I wasn't sure what it was. There's also this other kid. Like, I don't know. He couldn't have been more than 20. Um, I'm not really sure why he's there. I guess he's supposed to be Peter's assistant or chauffeur or something. Yeah, yeah. He's he's somebody that – he's kind of a handler that um, I believe that his – well, Bulmer is the name of the agent that, that the agent put together for him to uh, right. just kind of help him around Rome or whatever. He's staying at like a, like a I think it's somebody's home or somebody's apartment or something like that that they've rented out. I don't think it's a hotel proper. No, it seems like an apartment building. Yeah, but his bag was kind of taken from him at the airport, but then sort of dropped a few feet away from him. And uh, by the time he finally opens up his bag, he sees inside there are some, like, looks like bloody clothing. I feel like the movie actually does move pretty quickly, at least the plot does, because immediately the inspector is right there at his door and says, hey, um, you know, we found this dead woman, this is what happened, and the reason we're talking to you is because the killer had stuffed pages of your book in his mouth. That's when they find the letter, right? And the letter says something like, Mm -hmm. there was only one answer to the fury that tortured him. Like, it's from his book book like the killer is taking his cues from the book yeah and then the killer calls the apartment and it's really weird the killer's voice like it sounds like the killer is kind of trying to disguise their Mm. voice yeah but it sounds like a woman yes it does it does sound like a woman which kind of threw me hello peter neal speaking not anxiety or fear but freedom you wrote those words page 46 freedom to strike again you told me how peter neal It does throw you, and I think there's kind of a reason for that. 
And so we basically have this setup that says, uh, classic, right? The cops are like, we need your help to help us find this guy, this this person. So as soon as the killer calls and they got them on the phone, the police run out there uh, to try to find uh, the person, hot pursuit, but uh, don't find him. And and the the police detective has this assistant, and she's female, and she doesn't have a huge role to play, but I think it's funny Maybe just more a sign of the times that he turns and he looks at her and he's like, Got away, huh? I couldn't get him. I should have a tough male assistant who runs fast. You'd hate it. You'd have nothing to bitch about. (laughs) And then we get this shot. Uh, It's this cutaway shot to a couple pills on a table and some bubbling water and the gurgling water in the background and a glass of water and a close-up on a guy's eye and he's groaning and and there's a shadow on the wall it looks like this man's kind of in pain and we get a completely odd seemingly out of the blue vision and i think that's what this is it's a, it's a vision or later we kind of find out probably a little bit from this guy's past i was very confused mm. <laughs> like, i didn't know what was going on like you see the killer like agonizing and like he takes some pills or whatever and then we do get this weird scene and it's so bizarre it it's is this gorgeous gorgeous woman like standing on a beach and she pulls her top down. She's stunningly beautiful. I, I read that this was played by a trans actress. She's she's just amazingly beautiful. But pulls her top down. And then I thought that somehow I had... <laughs> I thought that somehow Switched I had porn switched hub. tabs. Because I'm like, wait, is this porn? Because, like, she kneels down, she kneels down on the beach, and, like, these guys all surround her, and she's, like, caressing them and, like, rubbing her head up against their crotchal areas. And then another guy shows up and and slaps her, and she runs, but then, like, the other guys attack the guy that had slapped her, and then the guy that gets attacked, she, like, puts her shoe on his head and sticks her heel in his mouth and her shoes are super important like we get these red shoe uh flashbacks several times throughout the movie but then that's it and it cuts away and i'm like what was that like it was totally not just in my mind but like in the movie very surreal and dreamlike and i didn't even know what was going on yeah yeah, it's, it throws you for and a loop there. And it happens several more times. Like yeah, it does. It's weird. And it's explained in the end, but it's so out of context here that it's very confusing. Well, titillating, but confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always happens right after this, you know, close-up of some pills. It's like somebody's taking some pills and whatever. And then at the after this shot, you know, we get more of this shadow of this man sort of agonizing. I, I pretty much figured at this point that somebody, we don't know who, is troubled by visions of this, whether they're real, whether it's something that's happened in the past, or, or whether it's just some symbolic thing. We're seeing his or her fever dream, right, going on. Right. But then uh, we go back to Tilda. Tilda uh, is the woman who earlier was really antagonistic to him, the, the journalist, and she and her, we later found out, roommate slash lover are in a bar, and uh, her, her lover's a female, and uh 
barely I, no but no no woman in this movie i think wears a bra i'm not complaining i maybe it's just a sign of the times or whatever but there are moments in which like how do these people walk around in public like her nipples are like popping out of this thing right and left as she walks <laughs> you know what i'm saying or am i just focused on the wrong things <laughs> Well, no, you're focused on exactly what the filmmaker wants you to be focused on. I mean, you know, when she when, when she gets back to her apartment, it, it, she, like she has first she and her lover are like together in a bar or something and, and her lesbian lover. Yeah. But her lover like picks up a dude. But I love she's, this. She's kind no, of no, mad no. about it. Yeah, she's mad about it. But the dialogue in the bar is hilarious. She, she tells um, Tilda. He doesn't have a place. So I'm taking him back to us. Oh, Christ. Hey, what's bugging you? I thought we agreed. Okay, no ties, but you don't have to rub my face in it. Not your face, honey. Not tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's it's so dirty. (laughs) It was dirty and Uh, silly. Yeah. But, like, then, so Tilda goes home, and her lover is there having had her tryst, and they're still kind of fighting, and, like, the the lover is, for the next ten minutes, she's draped in a sheet, yes. but draped, draped so that her amazing breasts are on full display. Yeah. Um, for, for the next 10 minutes (laughs) and, and look, I can appreciate the beauty of the female form. And this woman is curvy and Mm. like, wow. Fantastic. If I looked like her, I'd have my tits out all the time too. (laughs) I get it. But, but you know, her acting, not so great. No. (laughs) The acting (laughs) from both of them is, is definitely the worst act probably the worst acting in the whole movie it's pretty bad this is a very cringy exchange between the two of them but their house is like an insane like postmodern crazy it's like blocks stacked upon blocks and it's it's incredible house this place and they have this tall staircase that she walks up uh to go to her room and tilda is downstairs looks out the window and then inexplicably just some music starts playing this happens a lot, actually, in Argento's movies. I remember specifically one scene of Phenomena where the main character is out in the forest and suddenly there's kind of like a magical thing dancing around in front of her, some fireflies, and she kind of walks through the forest and suddenly this super pumping music comes in, even though there's nothing super pumping happening on the screen. And we get this awesome, I don't know, what is it, like three-minute tracking shot that uh, starts outside of her window and slides up the house and kind of takes us past some of the other windows where we can see, you know, her lover upstairs moving from room to room and then across the roof and really close into the roof tiles as we cut across the roof down the other side of the house and finally it ends up uh, in front of a window where we see these gloved hands clipping away some shutters on one of the windows clearly uh, getting into the house. It's so stylized. I love this thing because I just sit there. I'm wait, you're waiting for something to happen, and it's like a good three minutes while this is sweeping around, and just what is it going to reveal, you know? Uh, and the music just is great. I, I think I read that this scene took like three days to be completed, just this one shot. So, yeah, so then um, this is our next murder. It's like a double murder. The first girl gets killed. He kills Tilda first. He slits her throat downstairs, 
and then the lover kind of hears something. So she comes downstairs. She sees uh, Tilda dead. And so she runs back up the stairs, but the killer's right behind her and then kills her too. But then he photographs the bodies, which is interesting because the next thing that we see is that he has a photo lab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where he's got all of these, like, pictures. And he's also got, like, files on women. So this isn't random like no he's well, choosing people for a particular reason he even whispers and again it sounds like a woman's voice but whispers filthy nasty pervert before he kills this girl right. the first girl so yeah well and did we did, i feel like we failed to say that when when um peter was being interviewed by the TV personality or whatever. I think his name was Berti. His last name is Berti or something like that. But he had said to him, Tenebrae is about human perversion and its effects on society. And I'd like to know how you see the effects of deviant behavior on our lives. Well, first of all, it isn't just about that. Two of the victims are deviants. No, wait a minute. Wait the a killer minute. is like... Wait a minute. Who says they're deviants? Oh, well, one one is gay, but so what? I mean, he's portrayed as perfectly happy. In fact, his relationship the with... The killer's motivation is to eliminate what he calls corruption. And that seems to be what's happening here. There's a whole scene where the landlord's daughter comes over to Peter's apartment to turn on his water, and she tells him to visit Carol at the bookstore on the corner, which I thought would surely be significant, but he never <laughs> does visit Carol at the bookstore on the corner, so I don't know what that was all about. But um, the killer... Sl- and Anne comes back over. The killer slips an, uh, another envelope under the door, and the message is in Latin, but Peter apparently can read Latin and translates it to, so passes the glory of Lesbos. Like, <laughs> like it's a little on the nose. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> but it tells the cops that they're, they're definitely all connected, you know? And also, Peter thinks yeah. he sees Jane's car outside the window. So there's this this Jane character who keeps possibly popping in that Peter's a little a little obsessed with the fact that he tries to call her a couple times more and doesn't get a reply and is a little obsessed with the fact that she may be there in in Rome for some reason. And we still don't really even know who Jane is. It's clearly somebody who he had a, a relationship with and uh, maybe cut it off or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's good at, at, at adding all these possibilities, right? Who's this Jane character? The film did a decent enough job of introducing us to enough people that it could be and throwing in a lot of suspicion amongst different folks. This journalist, you know, that Jane character. And then Maria, the girl who is the landlord's daughter or whatever, gets dropped off in a what looks like a, just a random bad neighborhood, but I guess it's near to her house. But it's nighttime. Well, but hold on a second. Can you explain this to me? Because I was really confused. Because mm. Maria leaves Peter's apartment with Johnny. Yeah. The nice assistant boy. And they leave together on a motorcycle. And then the next time we see her, she's fighting with some guy she's sitting on the back of some guy's but, motorcycle and she's yeah. fighting with him and she gets kicked off but that wasn't johnny was it, it wasn't johnny yeah it was really confusing you're right it was just another guy on a motorcycle later in the day i guess <laughs> she, yeah i guess she just really likes motorcycles <laughs> yeah well, that's the only way to get around in in italy these days you know <laughs> i liked this scene though i i really liked oh, the this... scene where 
she gets off and she's walking alone at night, which obviously is always not very smart for young women. But she sees this Doberman behind a fence and it, it's barking at her and she just walks away. But then she turns around. Did somebody let it out or did it just happen to get out? Did I'm not, did I, I miss think- something? I th- well, she kind of antagonizes the dog, right? It's barking at her, and she kind of kicks back at it through the fence a few times. You get the impression like she's just full of a lot of spit and vinegar. At first, I thought maybe somebody let it out, but I don't think that's the case. I think what actually happened was, as we see later, a demonstration of this dog can freaking climb fences. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is like a stunt dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Like, because she jumps over one fence... And the dog jumps over it. And I'm like, I believe that. But then she scales like this eight foot tall fence. And I'm like, there's no way this dog is getting over this. And the dog walks up to the fence, looks at it, turns around, walks like 12 feet back, and then <laughs> sprints at the fence and like scales it and gets over. It's and amazing. <laughs> I was impressed by this dog. And it attacks her. She gets attacked by the dog. Um, and she ends up, she's running away, and she ends up in this kind of opulent backyard at this door that we have seen. We know that this is the killer's photo lab <laughs> door. <laughs> um, and, and she gets attacked again by the dog right outside the door, but she escapes inside. And she finds all of those pictures and papers but the killer isn't there, so she – I thought this was really smart of her, actually. Yeah, she, yeah. she takes a lot of the papers and photographs and folds them up and sticks them in her skirt. And then she goes up into the house, and it's a, it's an extravagant house. Clearly, somebody wealthy lives there. Um, but the killer shows up, and, of course, he's all in silhouette and all black. And in that womanly voice, he hoarsely whispers, spy little spy and he chases her and i thought for sure she was going to get away but she doesn't she gets an axe to the gut yeah but and and the next morning peter gets a new letter where the killer explains that he's upset that he had to kill that girl but he will continue to kill all the deviants culminating with uh the the corrupter which it's suggested that Peter is the corrupter, and so he's going to be the last victim. And and let me just talk really quick about this chase scene. I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. Really tense, really spooky. And there's something about that POV, you know, when you're through their eyes and this girl's running away that kind of gets under your skin. There's a lot of tension building up to this, too, because we have saw this key. You know, just you just see this random image of a key dangling, and you're not really sure why. Uh, and then before that, the, we had seen a killer going through his files, and he's got a file, and one of them says prostitutes, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we see a, a bunch of prostitutes on the street and a car pull up and these legs get out of the car. And then that image of that key again. And then as though the killer wants to check something, he's fumbling around his pocket and he clearly sees that his key is missing. 
So when she wanders up and sees, gets to that door, oh, okay, this is the key. This is the door. This guy's going to be back soon. <laughs> so it's right. it's very much foreshadowed that this girl is in danger right. uh, in like three or four different ways before the chase scene even happens. And I love that about it's just very, very good filmmaking. It's really interesting how he like this with those sort of flashback images with the girl with the red shoe. He throws these things at you that just don't make sense at the moment, which kind of forces you to pay attention and engage your brain, I think. And then, at least in this case, you know, after about five more minutes, then you you start to piece together why you saw those images and what they mean. Right. Instead of just a very straightforward way of doing it, I I really like that. It kept me engaged in the film, the way that he does this. You're right. You're right. You know, that that whole series of things, to me, it seemed a little bit heavy-handed. Like, we see the killer you know, for accidentally leave the keys. And then we see him realize that he is, it it was unnecessary for, I mean, it was suspenseful, but it was unnecessary for me because I knew the door. So when she got to the door, I knew that she was going into the killer's lair. Um, but whatever she gets killed. Um, and at this point, Peter remembers the guy, the, the news reporter, Yes, yes. He he starts to put it together. And that's the thing, too. Like, every time he talks to the inspector, which he does somewhat regularly, the inspector is kind of like, look, you know, you're this murder mystery writer. Can't you help me figure this out? And he's like, well, I'm trying to figure it out. And at this point, he's like, oh, that reporter kept asking me about perverts and deviants. Um, I think that there's something there. He says, but if I tell the police, they won't believe me. But <laughs> if I figure it out on my own, then what a story that will be that the murder mystery guy solved this crime so he and johnny decide to go check out the crime scene and they go there and it's that big opulent house that we had seen before so we know they're at the right place and peter hangs back for some reason and johnny goes up to the you know pretty much right up to the porch where there are big you know glass doors and windows so he can see inside and Berdy comes in it is his house so it seems like it must be him. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, his lights go out, and Johnny can only see Berdy. Like, there's like a shrub or a big plant in front of the other side of the window. But he sees somebody approach Berdy, and he hears, you were right, it was me, I killed them all, in that same voice that we've heard throughout. And then Berdy gets axed right like in the head straight to the head he's dead so we feel like it can't be him and and johnny is like freaked out by this i mean he's standing like six feet away i didn't understand it even seems like the killer knows that he's there because like Mm. i feel like the killer like throws something through the glass or something yeah and then johnny runs away Go and goes back to find Peter, and when he finds Peter, Peter has been knocked out on the grounds by a rock, and like he's got a big 
gash in the back of his head. Like, Anne tells him when eventually he goes back to his apartment to clean up. She's like, you should go to the hospital. I was like, yeah, you should go to the hospital. You got a hole in the back of your head. (laughs) But he just puts a Band-Aid on it. He's fine. (laughs) Well, in the meantime, Anne uh, has, has actually seen almost, she's almost certain of it, Jane again. This woman kind of from uh-huh. across the street pop into her car and drive off. She's like, this is Jane. Uh, anyway, she goes back to Peter's apartment and Peter asks Anne if she would stay the night. And this is where they kiss. And the way they're talking about it, it's clear that, or she says outright, you know, oh, I've never slept in the hotel, yeah. the same place with you before. And they kiss. And so you get this impression that, yeah, they haven't really consummated anything before now, but but they are now. I know, but it's kind of lame. Like, she's yeah. like, yeah. you have to promise me that when we wake up tomorrow, none of this ever happened. Like, oh, God, grow up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're both grown ups. <laughs> she, she says, I know, she, she says, like, six years together and we've never spent the night together. And when he asks her to spend the night, he's like, just as friends and then like the second she's in her pajamas he's putting the moves on her and she's totally into it and it's fine but she's (laughs) like tomorrow it'll be as though nothing happened okay i mean come on like if you want to hook up that's fine just do it don't be babies about it (laughs) anyway so i mean we don't see anything other than them kissing but it's implied that they hook up and then we get another one of those weird red shoe girl fantasies where this beautiful red shoe girl is walking through like a botanical garden or something i don't know and the killer presumably is watching her from behind a tree foliage as he's <laughs> prone to do but then he approaches but then he approaches her and and stabs her and that's the end of it peter then goes back to bulmer john saxon and says i want to get out of here Anne had suggested that like maybe we should just go back to america or whatever and peter goes to bulmer and says look you know i think maybe i should just get out of here and bulmer says yeah but you know it's your publicity tour you need this deal or whatever i don't know he says, but I'll I'll put you up in, like, a secret suite somewhere, which it seemed like Peter kind of agrees to, and then Peter leaves. And then Bulmer opens a secret door in his <laughs> office to reveal Jane, yeah. and they make out. And as it turns out, Bulmer has been having an affair with Jane. Why they feel the need to keep it a secret, I don't know, because it doesn't seem like Peter has any interest in Jane and, in fact, wants to be rid of her. Yeah. And and at this point, also, I thought, oh, it's them. Like, they're doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. Bulmer's doing it. Because he says to um, Jane, it won't be long, I promise. And then they they make plans to have lunch later. And then Peter goes back to the crime scene to talk to the inspector, and they have a whole talk about, like, the Hound of the Baskervilles. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's a sentence in a Conan Doyle book. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Mm -hmm. The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes. And the detective actually asks him to leave town at this point. And he says, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. I was really thinking about doing it. And he that. says he's going to, and he does. Mm-hmm. We see him get on a plane and leave. Now we get to see Jane go home. She goes, I guess, to her home, somebody's home, and finds a package to her by the door. And when she opens up the package, there are red shoes inside. And she seems 
I don't know, kind of puzzled by it, but she thinks it's a present from Bulmer, I think. Right, right, uh, yeah. In the meantime, Bulmer is out in this piazza waiting for Jane, and she's apparently super late or something. Uh, he's looking around. He can't see her. He can't find her. And we get a couple more shots of these pills. Somebody, you know, walks into a bar and gets a glass of water to down them with, uh, and this heavy sort of breathing. And and this is a kind of a neat scene. I really liked how all this played out. It's super suspenseful because you know something's going to happen. But it's this wide open piazza with tons of people and lots of little drama going on here and there. I felt like that was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was something weird about it. Like everywhere you look, and it's not just in this scene. It happens a couple of other times too. In the background. Or, you know, as Bulmer is just casually observing people, there's there's conflict going on everywhere. Mm. Like, he sees these lovers fighting, and then on the other side of him, he sees a couple of guys kind of almost getting in a fist fight. It almost felt like a zombie movie, like these little <laughs> hints of discord happening all around. And it doesn't really end up being all that significant, but I, I didn't know if it was supposed to be... in atmospheric or or what it was a little bit bizarre because that scene with him just sitting there looking around goes on for a while yeah it does and then he's just sitting there and um we're expecting jane to show up but we instead get the pov approaching him we don't know who it is but it appears to be somebody that he knows like you see recognition in his face right before he then gets stabbed in the middle of the day, in the middle of this busy piazza, mm-hmm. and nobody bats an eye. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody even notices for well, they, a while. Yeah, the, it's a, there's a woman kind of approaching him. He does this little fake out, right? There's this woman who's walking t- just in his direction, who's just had an argument with a guy. And then you get a POV towards him that seems like it's maybe from that woman. But then uh, after he gets stabbed, then the woman is still approaching, we see, and she looks down in horror and screams, and people start to, you know, gather around while he's twitching on the ground. But yeah, you're right. It's a little improbable, maybe, that this person could have taken off. And then in the crowd, you know, we just get a shot of feet, and we see these red shoes walking up, which is presumably Jane, looking down, turning around, and and, and slowly walking away. And, and that's interesting, right? right? Like... What's well, that all presume, about? Right. I mean, it's presumably Jane, but we still yeah. don't really know. Mm-hmm. And then this is the point where Peter says goodbye to Johnny and he leaves, blah, blah, blah. And then Johnny, even though he has been averse to going back to the crime scene before because he was so traumatized by it, he goes back by himself because he just feels like there's a just a piece missing. He can't remember everything and there's just a missing piece. And and he stands in the same place that he was standing when he saw Berti get murdered. We get to see his recollection of it. And we realized that that what he had heard, yes, it was me, I killed them all. That was actually Berti saying it, not the person who killed Berti. Mm-hmm. And so we Berti was the original murderer. And Johnny says out loud exactly what I was thinking. So who killed him? Like, <laughs> and who's been killing people since then? Yeah. 
And so Johnny goes back to his car and he gets strangled in his car. But before he dies, he's able to turn around and he sees the killer. And again, we can tell by his reaction that it's somebody that he knows. Yeah. Um, so presumably this is somebody that we know too. Yeah. It's twisty. It is twisty. Jane randomly calls Anne looking for Peter. And she says, and again, like, I get it. It's supposed to be twisty and red herrings. And, you know, we're not supposed to, we're supposed to be confused. But Jane says to Anne that she was looking for Peter. But she says, It's like there are two people in me. And sometimes the other one just takes over. Where are you, Jane? Are you in Rome? Yeah. Help me, please. Don't let me kill myself. Tell me where you are, Jane. I'll come around, all right? An apartment on the... Casilla, number 11. I'll be right round. Give me a few minutes. I am so sorry. I didn't mean to. I wanted to explain. All right. So I guess Anne's going to go over there, and we see Jane sitting in her apartment with a gun. And I have no idea what's happening here. I don't know if she's sitting there with a gun because, like, she's threatening to kill herself. I don't know if she's sitting there with a gun because she's trying to lure Anne there to kill her because she's jealous. I have no idea. But she's sitting there in front of this big window, and it's storming, and there's lightning outside. And out of nowhere, an axe comes through, breaks through the window, and chops her arm off. And she jumps up and, like, spins around, and blood just splatters, like, paints the entire white wall behind her. And it looks fantastic. It's insane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I read it looks so good. I read in the trivia that Quentin Tarantino said the murder of Jane via axe in this scene is his favorite on-screen death scene of all time because of its intense imagery and the fact that she paints the wall with blood, which makes sense because if you think about later, have you ever seen Kill Bill? Have you ever seen the uh Yeah, oh yeah. You remember Kill Bill when uh, the the big scene, uh the big fight scene, I think it's in the first one in you know, it's it's the it's the martial arts kind of extravaganza and the place where Lucy Liu's character is and he's chopping people's yeah, she's yeah, chopping yeah. people's arms off right and left and their arms are just spraying blood everywhere like it's no tomorrow. Oh, I had forgotten about that. It's a common trope in martial arts movies, too. Some particular Hong Kong action movies had this aesthetic of the geysers of blood that would just shoot out of somebody. But What was that movie, that Tokyo Gore Police? Do you remember that? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, oh, Tokyo Gore too. Police. <laughs> so, and then there's the trippy red shoe girl murder fantasy again. Mm-hmm. And then some man's hands take the shoes, I guess, from Jane's apartment. So it's the killer and the killer is still in the house. Like, because Anne, we know that Anne is coming. So a car pulls up and a woman walks in and immediately she gets axed from behind, from behind. And then the killer, we, it, I, I I liked this part just because it focused on the killer's shoes and then it started to pan up and I'm like, oh, here it is. We're going to find out who it is. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was Peter. Yeah. And at this point, I assumed it must be because everybody else that we know is dead. So yeah. unless it was going to be unless it was going to be the detective. Right. It had to be Peter. <laughs> I mean, there were, I thought it was everybody at some point, you know, <laughs> to be honest. But yeah, Peter. Yeah. Peter's the obvious one. Then the detective enters. Peter comes up to the body because uh, he thinks he might have accidentally killed Anne. Right. 
It's the lady inspector. The inspector comes in with a gun and trained on Peter, and Anne enters as well. Anne explains that he figured it out. Peter <laughs> spins around, starts walking away from them, and then he like spins around, reaches into his shirt pocket, and pulls out a razor blade. Now, maybe we've neglected to mention this, but almost all the people in this film to this point, by the way, have also been killed by razor blades. Or axes, yeah. Even though it hasn't been Peter doing the killing until recently right only since bertie the original guy and it's revealed at this point that peter is nuts and they they talk about it and they talk about later yeah and and what's his name germani the inspector i think kind of explains or maybe peter says it i i don't remember that he wanted to kill jane and bulmer and he wanted Berdy to take the fall for it and they had had a discussion about this earlier about how Peter had said to the inspector, like, it seems like somebody's already dead who shouldn't be dead or somebody who's supposed to be dead isn't yet. Yes. Like, things haven't worked out right. Now, it, this doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me because if Peter figured out that Bertie was the killer and he wanted Bertie to take the fall for Jane and Bulmer, who Peter wanted dead, then why did Peter kill Berti before he could frame him for the murders? Yeah. That didn't, that's a, I don't understand that. That's a very good point. I don't understand that either. It, he loses his alibi right then and there. I just think, you know, he's just crazy, and he can't control himself anymore. He can't control himself, and he talks about how, you know, killing all these people has, and, you know, solving the initial mystery and then killing these people felt like writing a book. But, like, mm-hmm. he's just clearly unhinged but it's kind of like you know he was taking over the narrative or whatever yeah and but you're right he pulls out this you know uh straight razor and slits his own throat and so germani and Anne go out and sit in his car germani explains that they had figured out that it must be peter because they looked into his file and it turns out that the on his record, it showed that this young woman, the Red Shoe Woman, had been murdered and he was a suspect, but they hadn't been able to pin it on him or something. And he says, you know, if he did do it, this must have been something that had haunted him um, for his entire life, which all adds up, you know. Yeah. That's oh, why good. we've been seeing the flashbacks and the pills. and Well, and it... It neatly brings back the quote from the beginning of the movie, and this is how the detective pieced it together, too, because the detective had actually been reading Peter's book. And, you know, at one point he says to him, yeah, I finished your book. And actually, as opposed to the other ones of yours, I actually knew who did it by the end. But, you know, the part of the quote that we had heard was, everything he did could be swept away by one simple act, annihilation. That's the end of the quote. So the beginning of the quote kind of explains why Peter did it. He got a taste for the murder. He realized that he could do it again. But then the end of the quote makes him think. And I had the exact same thought, too, as soon as he said that. I was like, wait a second. So does that mean also (laughs) that somehow Peter swept his own problems away by his killing himself, which then the detective just kind of looks at her and goes, you know, can you just wait here for a moment, And I'm going to go inside. And he goes inside, and Peter's body is not there. 
<laughs> it's great. And he he picks up on the floor is just a like a bloody rag and this razor blade. And when he picks up the razor blade, he sees there's a little button on it and blood squirts out of the oh fake blood of course squirts out of the mm-hmm. little holes in the razor. So it's a totally fake razor, he fake the death. Now, the detective gets it here, right? Yes. Uh, Peter axes him, and so Anne's sitting out in the car by herself. So she goes back in, and Peter is waiting for her as though he's going to kill her too now, I guess. he He's just unhinged enough that he doesn't care anymore. But there's been this huge sculpture right by the door the whole time that looks like it's just made of... I don't know. Of death. Things that were obviously in... Right, yeah. I mean, it's just like a death. Like, (laughs) if this thing falls on you, if you trip and fall into it, you're going to be impaled and die. And that's exactly what happens. Anne opens the door. It knocks over the sculpture. It completely impales Peter and pins him to the wall. And there's really kind of an uncomfortable scene where he's trying to pull it out. But I guess because of the blood or sweat or whatever, his hands are slippery and he just can't even pull it out. Yeah. And he's pinned there to the wall as Anne screams and screams and screams and screams. <laughs> and it and it just fades to black and her screaming just continues for like the next five seconds. Over the over, credits. <laughs> over the credits. Yeah. Which is a little bit silly, but at the same time, I thought, I, I, I kind of liked it. Like just... I- I liked it. She's just shrieking. I loved it. Yeah. It was great. You know, this is a thing. It seems like Argento. How many Argento movies have we seen where there are these crazy abstract sculptures that in some way fall on somebody or stab somebody or something like that? Oh, and I know. And as soon as I saw it the very first time, I'm like, "Mm." yeah, (laughs) (laughs) somebody's getting impaled on that thing. You read my mind. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so overall, the mystery was fine. I, I, like I said, by the time that the killer was revealed, there were so few options of who it could be that I wasn't entirely shocked. But I felt like, you know, they did a good job of keeping it suspenseful and, and keeping me guessing. I thought I had figured it out a couple of times. I thought that it was um, the agent. Um, yeah. I thought that the agent and Jane were in on it together. And then, you know, that ended up falling apart. So I was surprised. And um, I, you know, I think the movie is, I understand why people say and why this movie isn't, considered one of his best it is good i don't even know if it's my favorite one of the ones that we've seen which one was it where um it all ended up hinging on a painting that a guy saw in the very beginning i believe that was deep red i i think that i enjoyed that one more but this one was fine the these movies are not necessarily my cup of tea but as far as I understand what they are. I understand the formula they adhere to, and it's fine. And as far as this movie is concerned, I thought it was fine. The The people that we're paying tribute to, Daria Nicolotti, I didn't feel like she had a whole heck of a lot to do. She no. kind of felt like a side character. A little bit. She's she's pretty and, and totally fine in the movie. Um, John Saxon, again, there are other movies that we could have talked about where he played a more prominent role, but we've already talked about our favorites and, and we've been very complimentary of him 
when we've done that. So I hope that we have paid our due diligence and paid our respects um, to John Saxon. He's a fairly minor character in this movie, but handsome and charming and young, and uh, I enjoyed his performance. Overall, for what it is, I give the movie a thumbs up. And if you are into these types of movies and you haven't seen this, I would recommend it. If you're like me and it's just not really your cup of tea, I think that you, like me, are going to find it to be more of the same. But yeah, I mean, that's where I stand on it. Well, obviously I have a different perspective on it just because I'm a huge fan of these kind of movies and I've seen a lot, so many of them. This is really far up there on my list now. I am i can't believe it's taken me so long to watch it. But it's also, you know, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's very much this Giallo-style crime-type picture. And there are a ton of crime movies out there and many of them that we've reviewed with this style. I think the thing that sets this one apart for me is its straightforwardness and it's really tight plotting. It was more twisty than these things tend to get. There's always a twist or two, but sometimes the twists are a little improbable or the plot goes in directions that are, things are just a little improbable or too neat or too coincidental or just plain wacky. And this movie is so mainstream in the way that you could have potentially figured it out. Everybody has a great shot at figuring this out before they go in to watch it. And I felt that way through the whole movie, like this is a film I could trust. Mm. And I think that it, it was very skillfully done, you know, it dropping those little hints and those little notes and those little red herrings in there. Yeah. I was following it more closely than I tend to follow this stuff. Sometimes I just give up, you know, I'm like, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll see who it was at the end. Right. But here I was really engaged and really trying hard and really engaging my brain. And I think part of it's due to the plot. And part of it, as I said earlier, is just due to the way some of the images are put together. The way the film is edited, I think, engages your brain that way, throws a few odd things at you that you're not quite sure what they mean, but you're kind of engaged trying to find out. Sure. And then it satisfies that every at every moment. So there's by the time of the end of the movie, you're really not left with any questions. But that begs the question, Craig, you said that there was one thing that you thought you somebody couldn't be in one place. What was that? It was when Bertie got murdered. Now, I, I realized that... Um, Peter stayed back in the yard while Johnny went and witnessed it happening. So it's not like that he had to be in two places at the same time, but then he knocked himself out in the back of the head with a rock. Like, yeah, it's a little... Uh, that seems a little improbable to me. Yeah. But whatever, I don't care. I'm not <laughs> looking for perfect realism in these movies. It's fine. It, it's I, I, I will concede that it's possible... I guess. I mean, I I don't think that it would be physically or psychologically possible for me to strike myself that hard in the back of the head with a rock. Mm -hmm. But maybe if you're crazy, you can do those kinds of things. So yeah. it's fine. <laughs> Once the medication wears off. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to our tribute to John Saxon and Daria Nicolaudi. They, they put their mark on cinema. They did. And we have other people to pay tribute to in the next week or two. So please stay tuned. If you enjoyed us, please share this podcast with a friend. You can find us online. Just two guys and a chainsaw is all you need to Google. And you'll find our Facebook page, our website, our YouTube channel. You can leave us a comment in any one of those places. Let us know what you thought of this film and give us requests for films to do in the future. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Ah.